Greetings, family. This is Iapo. Um, so I am going to broadcast live from Facebook too, and I am kind of slacking, but I am going to do that right now. So for those of you who are joining, I am getting ready to do my live on the wonderful reading of the great cosmic mother, rediscovering the religion of the earth. Okay, so this is Cassandra Floyd, formerly known as Yapo, for the continued reading of the great cosmic mother, Rediscovering the Religion of the Earth by Barbara Walker, Monica Zhu. So I actually have a bit of a story to tell, but I won't make it long. Um, so I have been getting um, messages from people uh, from all over about the reading of the book. So for a long time, I've been reading the book now for... Since the end of January, we have four more chapters left, but the chapters are extremely long. Um, so we should be done. My hopes are that we'll be done the first week of July. So, <laughs> hey, karma, so that I can get kicked off with the workshop and book club for this book. Now, the reason I want to preface is because I, <laughs> I'm coming, girl. I'm coming. I promise. Um, I got an interesting, um, I had an interesting correspondence this week. So I'm getting um, a lot of messages on both my YouTube and my Instagram about the reading of the book. I'm always self-conscious because I'm like, man, I'm reading this book by myself. Nobody's really fucking with this book the way they need to be. And then I'll get some emails or I'll get some messages that are like, oh my God, this book came into my life just at the perfect time. And that's why I've been so convicted about reading the book. So anyway, long story short, two o'clock in the morning, three days ago, I get a, um, I get a Facebook message about the book club. So I have a link in the description on my YouTube channel, each description for each chapter of the book. I have listed below the link through which I, uh, I'm going to be facilitating the book club after I'm done with the complete reading, right? So it just seemed like a random person. They were like, oh, my God, you know, I'm so glad I found, you know, you reading this book. I haven't read it yet. So this is going to inspire me to read it. That's it. So I get this message. I'm like, oh, OK, well, I really appreciate it. Whatever, whatever. Guess who the uh, guess who this person was? The daughter of Barbara Moore, the daughter of the woman who wrote this book. Okay, so six months ago, I think I might have even mentioned this. I got um, this woman reached out to me who lives in Sweden, who is the granddaughter. Yes, who is the granddaughter of the um, of the other author of this book. Right. Uh, accredited author author of this book, Monica Zhu. So this woman reached out to me. This is about six months ago when we've been, you know, we've been. FaceTiming and emailing each other back and forth. And then just a few days ago, all random and out of the blue, 
this woman inboxes me supposedly about the book club. And then as we're talking, she's like, oh yeah, by the way, Barbara Walker is my mother. We ended up, we ended up messaging each other back and forth for about two hours. Okay. So what I want to do eventually is like interview her because she gave me all the juice. Okay. Like, it's really difficult to find a lot of information about these authors. Um, and there's controversy, like good tea about the two authors of this book, The Great Cosmic Mother, Rediscovering the Religion of the Earth. Now, I ain't going to give everything away here, but just know I'm already in the talks with her because she lives in Portland. I'm already in discussion with her, and so I'm going to drop it on her that I need to interview her on my channel about the history of this book. The book was uh, published in 1987. She apparently was a little girl when her mother wrote this book, and yo, the story is unbelievable and incredible, so I cannot wait to share that with you guys, and I'll keep you posted on that happens. In the meantime... Um, so this week has been kind of crazy. There's a lot going on in my house. Um, my family are, are getting ready to move back south and, you know, and I'm, you know, trying to reinvent my next move carrying on. So I didn't read Monday or Wednesday this week. So I'm not going to make up for that. I'm still only going to read for about an hour today. Um, but hopefully next week. I'll be back on schedule because I really do want to finish this book by the first week of July. So right now we're on chapter 47. We're finishing chapter 47 today, which is called The American Split. We're about halfway through the chapter. And I think with the time that I have today, we, yeah, definitely, we'll get into the first half of chapter 48, which is entitled The Divine Homosexual Family. Y'all ain't ready for that chapter. Just saying. Also, I should mention my disclaimer. So I have a disclaimer that I've been trying to be a little bit disciplined about putting forward at the beginning of every reading. This book is, um, it is, it can be very triggering for those who may be sensitive, um, emotionally or what have you. Um, and I ask that people, you know, um, participate in the reading or listen to the reading with an open mind and an open spirit and an open heart. When I, this is my fourth time reading the book. And when I read the book, I was the first time I was extremely resistant. And um, this book has changed me in so many ways. So, so many ways. Like it really has been an evolutionary process for me. And so that's all I'm asking. If it's not for you, that's cool. I, no judgment. I, I will not be offended, but I'm telling you, like, this book is the game changer, and you have to be ready for that. So anyway, um, I will begin. In Nicaragua, and in any place touched by the energy of liberation theology, the popular belief is entre, uh, entre cristianismo y revolución no hay contristación contradiction between the true Christianity and the people's revolution there is no contradiction in quote but what is Christianity without the established Christian church built on traditional biblical Christian ontology 
Che Guevara said, quote, at the risk of seeming ridiculous, let me say to you that the true revolutionary is guided by great feelings of love, end quote. This is the radical Christian vision, also the vision of Jesus as a social revolutionary. Such a vision has historical precedent going back through the European Gnostic and heretical com uh, communalism, back through the gospel days, about 2,000 years older than Marxist analysis. But as we've said, it goes back even further than that to the Neolithic vision of the uh, vegetation deity or to the original great mother herself, primal beings of, uh, let's see, primal beings who sacrificed themselves through love to restore and refructify all life on earth. The radical Christian vision is and always was a reemergence of paganism. To be, to be truly revolutionary, I'm always taking notes, even though you can see that my book is like well studied and marked up, but yeah. Okay. So to be truly revolutionary, Christianity would have to dissolve itself. Okay. It would have, it would have to dissolve its male dominated and celibate hierarchies. Uh oh. And the social class systems from which it derives all its worldly power. It would have to renounce and dissolve totally the world hatred and flesh hatred, the ontological misogyny, which has so long provided it with uh, fanatic energy. It would have to renounce the Old Testament, most of the New Testament, and all of Revelations. Oh my God. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, and all revelations, which dooms us to a grotesque apocalypse. How um, it would have to throw out Genesis to return us radically to an image of God based on the pre-biblical universal perception of a great mother, a bisexual being, both female and male, in spirit and function, who wants us to enjoy ecstasy and to eat of the fruit of immortality. It must totally renounce and dissolve spiritual chauvinism, spiritual hypocrisy, spiritual paranoia, and spiritual tyranny, and all world systems built in the secular image of these spiritual distortions. It would have to wholly renounce and dissolve all perceptions, systems, and functioning uh, functions deriving from the false historical idea that some people have a divine mandate to co-opt, convert, genocidally destroy, or otherwise imperialize others. It would have to crucify itself in its own terms as expiation for all this guilt. But as we said, if the Christian church ever changed itself this radically, it would become pagan again. To realize its most radical vision, Christianity can only reinvent paganism. So why not just simply be there? In North America, the rationalism of the founding fathers, the deistic 
rationalism of the Enlightenment, which wrote the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights, has given us a large measure of spiritual freedom and of freedom to experiment, of freedom from cradle to grave conditioning and control by the dogmas of any particular church in collusion with the state. We all owe more to this rational freedom than we realize because it has worked. We take it for granted. We have no concept of what it, what it is like to grow up under the conditions of state-enforced religious tyranny. At the same time, this very rationalism has pervaded the American atmosphere with non-ecstasy. Oh, 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 oh my God. Yo. Listen, she said the radicalism, I mean, the, the rationalism saved us from the tyranny the Europeans suffered from in Europe and ran to escape to save themselves. But this rationalism has given way to a life without ecstasy. Okay. Ooh. Listen. A freedom from cradle to, to grave conditioning and control by the dogmas of any particular church in collusion with the state. We all owe more to this rational freedom than we realize because it has worked. We take it for granted. We have no concept of what it is like to grow up under the conditions of state-enforced religious tyranny. At the same time, this very rationalism has pervaded the American atmosphere with non-ecstasy. For generations, many people have felt they stood in a very dry, pragmatic wasteland, secular America, with no genuine tradition of spiritual celebration, of communal epiphany, of communal epiphany. Americans long for this more than they know. The ersatz results of orgies of patriotism and game fever at parades and in football stadiums, but never quite the real thing, at least not as a communal experience. Y'all ain't hearing. <laughs> Y'all are not hearing. Woo. Listen. Oh my God. We are conditioned to a chronic state of escapism. This is what she's talking about right now. You understand? Let me fix myself. A chronic state of escapism, football games and parades, trying to experience what our spirits are longing for and never quite making it there. Mm -mm -mm. Fix myself. I'm all over the place. Sorry about that. Yo, anyway. So in Latin America, the Catholic Church, which is chronologically and psychologically much closer to the pagan than anything, uh, than is anything Protestant, has allowed celebrations and customs of indigenous Indian people to remain alive, interwoven in a festive ribbon, ribbon with Catholic holidays, saints days, frequent loud celebrations of cycles and epiphanies. Latin America has has this, which North America longs for in the secret places of what's left of its soul. But Latin America also bears the terrible burden of political and military dictatorships. Nearly, at least, uh, nearly, let's see, excuse me, 
uh, military dictatorships, partly at least established and maintained in power by almost 500 years of domination and status quo rational, rationalization by one church. The death squads, the armies of terror and torture now running rampant through so many of this hemisphere's nations are in fact the leftover machinery of the Inquisition, baby. Never wholly dismantled in the Catholic tradition and now re-oiled, updated, redesigned and modernized by the imperialist interests of the new Roman Empire corporate America. Woo! The American split in raw terms is this nominal freedom without real life ecstasy oh my god and nominal epiphany without real life freedom oh my god such a split is always the result when life is fed into the patriarchal dualistic grinding machine which churns out globs of white fat or pours runnels of blood, which turns out tasteless hamburger, or the red screams of the butchered, which grinds out always one disconnected fragment or another, but never the whole feast, never holism, never the living gratified flesh of a true spiritual vision. God, ooh, my God. That is the end. So that was very short. That is the end. Uh, chapter 47, uh, 47, moving on to the next chapter, 48, the divine homosexual family. Now, for any of those of you who are tuning in late, um, there is a link in the description below. If you are tuning in from my YouTube channel, uh, that sends you to a link where you can download the PDF version of this book. If you would like to read along and take notes as I do regularly um, and for those of you that are tuning in with me on Facebook, you can also do the same. Just Google the Great Cosmic Mother PDF, and it's the first thing that comes up. So you can download the file and read along until you get the book because you need the book. Okay. So the Divine Homosexual Family, Chapter 28. I mean, excuse me, Chapter 48. In January of 1977, the Pope announced that women could never be priests in the Catholic Church. The reason given was that Christ is a male and his priests must be imitations of him. In the Netherlands on May 13th, 1985, Pope John Paul II reiterated the Vatican's position on women to a large crowd of less than, less than enthusiastic Hollanders. Women will never be allowed in the Catholic priesthood, he said. Liberal Protestant denominations now allow women ministers and conservative Jewish leaders have just opened the way for women rabbis in their synagogues. But among Catholics, as among conservative Christian churches, such as the Mormons and Orthodox Jews, women are still not considered the proper sex to serve sacred ministries or interpreters of the biblical God. The highest a woman can go in the Catholic hierarchy is deaconess, a role always subordinate to the male priest. As far as the Vatican is concerned, a priestly relation with the male Christ can only be enjoyed by another male. Both of them served humbly by convent trained nuns as a kind of holy harem of the patriarchal spirit. <laughs> Listen, y'all ain't heard. Okay. Anyway. 
the liberal egalitarianism of the other Christian and Jewish denominations where women ministers and rabbis are now accepted is a very recent occurrence. It came about only via feminism and the pressure of Christian and Jewish women for spiritual acknowledgement by their respective faiths. For most of the millennia of Christian and Jewish history, the biblical God Yahweh and his immaculately begotten son Christ have always and only been represented at the altar by a male. Quite often, these males have worn skirts and always, in all times, they have been the givers and upholders of dogmatic laws regarding women, laws telling women how to dress, how to move, how to behave, how to relate to our bodies, how to reproduce, when to reproduce, how to have sexual activities, when to have sexual activities, how to relate to our menstrual periods, our childbirths, our afterbirths, how to bow our heads, how to cover our hair, keep our eyes modestly averted, how in general to be pliant and submissive and unquestioning handmaidens in the holy black halls, kitchens and bedrooms of the Lord. Indeed, this strange urge of holy men of all patriarchal denominations to stand there wearing skirts, giving sermons to the world's genuine females on what it really means to be a woman is a propensity that needs deep pondering. Nonetheless, it has been the history of the male God religions. What needs proper, what needs deeper pondering by all of us is why women continue today to plead for the egalitarian respect in reactionary churches that clearly now and historically have no interest in women as anything but followers and servants of the Lord. The Catholic Church's male hierarchy does not need women priests and dismisses the very idea with celibate contempt. Oh my God. But the Catholic Church needs women. Come on. Listen, the hierarchy, the Catholic Church's male hierarchy does not need women priests and dismisses the very idea with celibate contempt. But the Catholic Church definitely needs women. Wherever the church exists, it is millions and millions of female believers, low pay teaching nuns, volunteer women parishioners, catechized mothers catechizing their children, uh, who keep the Catholic church alive, baby. Oh my God. In all Christian churches until very recently, this was the traditional case. Women's natural religious impulse and capacity has kept patriarchal churches in business for so long. The female gift for spirituality into which under patriarchy, we pour so much repressed sexual energy is used and turned against us by the male hierarchies of the male God churches. They cleverly keep women on our knees, scrubbing and scrutinizing the sacred floor, while they, a few select princes of the churches, rise upward in lofty clouds, lofty clouds of worldly power and luxury. Religious women think they are worshiping God. In truth, under patriarchal religion, women believers exist only to service and inflate the institutionally ordained egos of very mortal men. Oh my God. 
On October 7, 1984, 24 American nuns were listed as signers of a public statement printed in the New York Times. The statement was headlined, quote, a diversity of opinions regarding abortion exists among committed Catholics, end quote. American nuns in the past few decades have been at the forefront of social action for change, in particular regarding women's rights to control our reproductive functions, a right supported by a majority of American Catholics, it would seem. American nuns have, it would seem American nuns have been frequently willing to oppose or challenge the Vatican and the conservative American Catholic hierarchy. Sisters of, uh, Sisters of Mercy nuns, who direct the second largest hospital chain in the country, wanted to allow sterilization and tubal ligation in their hospitals, many of which are in isolated tradition, tradition bound areas where women have no other birth control options. The Vatican and a conference of U.S. bishops forced the Sisters of Mercy, under threat of dismissal from their jobs, to sign statements disavowing all surgical methods of sterilization. The Catholic hierarchy, like all consciously patriarchal power institutions, very much needs to maintain control over female reproduction. They won't allow sterilization or birth control. They definitely oppose abortion. A large number of American and European Catholic lay people disagree with the Vatican on all these issues. Let's see, on all of these issues. And the American nuns have been uh, heroically responsive to what they perceive as a desperate and legitimate need on the part of women to control the number of children we have. So the American nuns signed the New York Times paid statement which at its most radical simply pointed out that even the many Catholic theologians acknowledge that abortion can be a moral choice if specific, uh, in specific circumstances. The statement was signed by many prominent Catholics, including two priests in addition to 24 nuns. How did the Vatican respond? It threatened to expel the nuns from their religious communities if they refused to recant. What this dismissal means to these women, most of whom are over 40 and gave their lives to the church, is a loss of a home, of a, a loss of a community, a loss of a livelihood, and a loss of pensions. The nuns were not even informed of this threat. Um, the nuns were not even informed of this threat of severe punishment in advance. The orders came abruptly from their supervisors. A few of the nuns heard the news on the radio via a Vatican leak to the press before they even had a chance to be informed by their supervisors. In the words of one of the inquisitors, Archbishop Jerome Hamer, head of the church's sacred congregation for religious and secular institutes, which issued the official church statement against the nuns. The nuns were, quote, seriously lacking in religious submission of will and mind to the magisterium, end quote. The two priests involved recanted. The 24 heroic nuns to this date have not. In the words of theologian Rosemary R. Ruther, who was one of these statements signers, the conservative bishops and curia were enraged that nuns would sign such a statement, especially that celibate women were involved in an issue that shouldn't affect them at all. Uh, the curia can't stand the support of celibate women for women who have sex. 
Okay? Oh. Listen. Cannot imagine why sexless women would support those who are continuing to have sex. The 24 nuns, in Ruther's opinion, are among the best and the brightest in the American church. Some have national reputations for their organizational work for Central America, women's and gays' right and gay rights. Some hold PhDs from Yale, Harvard, and the University of Chicago. Some are theology teachers or authors of books on women's role in the church. They were zapped by the Catholic male hierarchy with no respect for their accomplishments, however, their accomplishments. However, something like an enraged husband kicking out a disobedient wife. Some of the nuns felt that Vatican's threats and mode of threatening constituted psychological rape. Under Vatican II, there was great liber uh, liberalization, not only in the relation between the church and the poor and in the area of social reform, but also in the customs and rules of the religious life within the church. Nuns and many priests, quote, came out socially, involving themselves passionately in radical issues, i.e. the anti-war movement, anti-nukes, Central America, women's rights. Nuns left their imprisoning habits and became strong crusaders for social justice. Um, under Pope John Paul II, the church hierarchy has been attempting to break and reverse this liberalizing direction, and in particular to get, the, oh my God, and in particular to get the uppity nuns back under absolute conservative male control. The media has focused on the most obvious Vatican backlash against the nuns, the attempt to force them back into their religious habits and long thick customs of uh, constriction and submission. But this back to the habits movement is only symbolic of something deeper. All habits are. In Ruther's informed opinion, the Roman Catholic Curia is maneuvering back to the top down uh, monarchial organization of the pre-Vatican second uh pre-Vatican second days in which all power and authority is at the top and all submission and obedience is at the bottom. In such a hierarchic scheme, the totally subordinate position of Catholic nuns is critical. In Ruther's words, quote, they are at the bottom of the chain of command. They are at the bottom of the chain of command but have the essential role of passing on commands to the laity as mothers to children. Quote, um, uh, excuse, as mothers to children. The burning question remains, why do women continue to give our gifts of spiritual devotion, of impassioned energy, of mental brightness, of profound social concern to male-dominated and male-defined religious institutions which are based structurally and ideologically on a searing contempt and hatred for women? Why do women continue to give our physical endurance and our biological endowment to patriarchal churches which exist ontologically and practically by attempting to dominate and control human female reproduction like a bunch of cattle breeders controlling the fertility of their cattle. What would happen today if all the millions of religiously active women on earth just walked out of their patriarchal churches and just left them there flat? Better, 
and braver and wiser to take our female blood energy and brain power and build our own church with within it making our own uh, making sacred our own experience of oneness within the mother between each other and within ourselves after two or three millennia of serving a male godhead and male priesthoods in devotion and submission could women ever take ourselves seriously enough to serve the sacredness of ourselves of each other of the earth and its holy wild creatures oh my god y'all ain't heard the word god this shit today okay oh my god this was the word for today right here just so y'all know this was the lesson this last paragraph that i just read was the coup d'etat for the day no study has been made of the effect of a male godhead on the intimate beliefs and experiences of women. Traditionally, nuns were seen as virginal brides of Christ, serving a purely disembodied sex role in the Catholic Church. The nuns also functioned as glorified housewives, polishing the church silver, embroidering altar cloths and vestments, always the humble handmaidens, and under the comp- and under the ultimate authority of father confessors and male priests serving as serving a male God and his son, a son who said to his mother, quote, woman, what do I have to do with thee? End quote. In earlier centuries where all the options for women were terrible, um, it was often a liberation for a creative independent woman to enter the cloister instead of being forced into what usually amounted to brutal marriage and eternal childbearing. Many of the great women artists and poets of the Middle Ages and Renaissance were nuns, living in all-women environments, ha, with freedom and time to think, read, write, and create. In the early Celtic Church of Ireland especially, many of the nunneries were communities of druid priestesses in drag, still mixing magic spells, and their pagan worship of the goddess bride with their daily Christian duties. I don't know. I might make it through this whole chapter today. Um, As Mallory told us, in um, Morte de Arthur, Morgan Le Morgan Lefay was not married, but put to church, but put to church in a nunnery where she did where she became a great mistress of magic. Covenant, uh, let's see, convent and coven. Convent and coven are the same word, after all. Doubtless the psychological influence of these witch nunneries contributed to the atmosphere survival of the, uh, atmospheric survival of the goddess in Ireland. According to folklorist Lewis Spence, as late as 1850, the Irish folk still worshipped her, regardless of the Catholic priesthood. Quote, at the well of St. Declan, Ardmore, Ardmore, County, uh, Waterford, 
Masses of people assembled annually on December 22nd, crawled beneath a hollowed stone and drank and then drank of the well. It was surmounted by the image of a female figure, which is described as being like the pictures of Kali, the black goddess of Hindustan, end quote. The Catholic priests actually whipped the folk away from the spot, but to, uh, but to no purpose. As Kali and Kalij are the same goddess after all, the whips of the priests can never turn what was into what was not, nor can failure of memory. The Christian Trinity has been dubbed, quote, the, the divine homosexual family, end quote. It consists of the all-loving father, his immaculately conceived son, and an all-male priesthood who live in celibacy among Catholics and among all Christians, and among all Christians serve in some strange way as male brides to the father church. West, uh, when Christians want to blame their religion for con- corruption and error, they usually refer to it as the mother church, making sure the father and his son are kept free from all of her blame, uh, free from all blame for her material failures. Most modern Christians do not know, however, that well into the Middle Ages, the Holy Ghost of the Trinity was seen as female by the people, another relic of goddess worship. The crime against the Holy Ghost is... Uh, is in Christian doctrine the only unforgivable sin. This continues the patriarch, uh, the, the matriarchal tradition that matricide is the crime without forgiveness. Mary, the only female now left on this divine scene, has nothing of the primal creatrix about her. She is a mere lowly mortal woman quote lifted up by Yahweh's divinely disembodied attention impregnated by it in fact without ever seeing or touching the man the product uh uh let's see without touching the man to produce a son for the heavenly father supposedly Mary is impregnated by the Holy Spirit this is interesting if we interpret this fertilizing ghost as the remnants of the great mother Um, the impregnation of Mary echoes all the classic patriarchal myths of mortal women being impregnated let's see um, let's see being impregnated oh excuse me The impregnation of Mary echoes all the classic patriarchal myths of mortal women being implanted by more or less force with the seed of the sun god. In all other myths, however, there is a fleshly contact between God and the mortal and something that could be called sex or rape. In the New Testament tale, there is no sex whatsoever. And it is the, it is to a divine absence that Mary acquiesces with vapid humility, an absence that uses her without even, without even having to touch her. And Mary, in our eyes, does not even gain the simple strength 
of struggling or choosing. She has no identity except as passive acquiescence to an absence. God damn. Oh my God. And this is how Christ is conceived in both his physical conception and in our conceptions of him. It is all so fastidious, so non-textural, so cerebral, and so unreal, so bordering on the sexually pathological, in fact, that the messy femaleness of Mary is dealt with by pretending it is not even there. The messy, uh, the messy female, let's see. Okay. And this has been the fate of female sexuality under Christianity. Exactly. <laughs> Listen, uh, let's see. I'll read that whole sentence again. The messy femaleness is dealt with by pretending it is not even there. And this has been the fate of female sexuality under Christianity. It simply is not there. It is a story of disembodied alienation and non-identity that stretches from the Virgin Mary of the New Testament to the modern story of O, in which a woman supposedly achieves complete sexual gratification by giving over her body wholly to male control while she remains anonymous without identity or passionate being just being there. Ah, oh, just not there. Excuse me. Just not there. Oh, is the 20th century incarnation of Mary. It, oh shit. Oh my God. Okay, so I read the book. So I have the context, all right? The story of O, by the way, you should read so you understand the context, okay? The story of, uh, or O, and the story of O is a 20th century incarnation of Mary in both an essentially anti-sexual cultural mind deals with female sexuality by using it without encountering it. For this was how Jesus Christ was conceived. And thus it becomes a major, though distorted, mode of eroticism in Christian culture. Oh, 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 oh. The faceless O undergoes daily sexual self-sacrifice and mutilation on the altar of a phallic God, just as the archetype Mary undergoes lifelong sacrifice of active self, mutilation of her conscious identity on the altar of Yahweh and Christ. For both women, the whole purpose of existence is self-obliteration through Let's see, self-obliteration through the body via the perpetual machine of sex or the perpetual machine of maternity. Mary and O are bookends in closing the history of women's lives under patriarchal religion, baby. In their stories, they act out an alienation that is personal, social, mythic, cosmic, and total. Mary foregoes sexual consciousness, sexual pleasure, physical prowess, economic and intellectual power, cosmic risk, the ontological and evolutionary adventure of creating one's own identity. She gives up her whole range of natural and magic potential in order to become a good mother for her divine son. Oh, 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 oh my God. 
<laughs> oh, shit. This is the beginning and the end of her meaning as a human being. Justice O's whole, whole meaning is a kind of sensual blob, a mass of flesh that exists to have things done to it. The biblical definition of a good woman is one who sacrifices herself completely to the needs and demands of others, particularly male others, while asking nothing for herself. This good woman is essentially the same, whether she dwells in with faceless humility in the house of the Lord or with anonymous masochism in private rooms of the sadist. <gasps> Woo! Shit. Oh my God. Listen. Damn. Under patriarchal religion, maleness is made, invented. Mm. Maleness is made under patriarchal religion, invented, mass produced, while femaleness is undone, unmade, de-evolved, extincted. God damn it, y'all are not listening to me right now. Yo, y'all, y'all ain't ready. Y'all are not ready for what's to come, child. I'm trying to tell you. This is the easy part right here. Is listening to me read to you what is to be done. Oh my God. Oh my God. Under patriarchal religion, maleness is made, invented, mass produced, while femaleness, y'all are not hearing this. This book was written in 87, by the way. This ain't no shit that was just scripted in the past decade. Okay. While femaleness is undone unmade, de-evolved, extincted. For over 2,000 years, Western biblicized women have been undergoing conditioning out of our natural powers and wisdoms. We grow up learning to disregard the effects of our own rhythms, which are cyclic like the moons, the tides, and the seasons. We learn the habits of ignoring them, denying them, trying to forget and overcome them as we live under the rule of the man within and without, who conceives of time as something that can be ordered and processed in mental mechanical categories, regardless of the bodies or the earth's phases. In this sense, all Western culture is built on ideal male homosexuality, this classic patriarchal, the classic patriarchal institutions of the military, the hierarchic centralized governments, the academic, medical, and legal profession, all uh, as well as the priesthoods of the various biblically derived denominations, all being built around the male body in its relation to other males and very explicitly to the exclusion of women's bodies, cycles, needs, and capacities. Woo! When James Watt became head of the U.S. Department of the Interior under Ronald Reagan's first administration, the department's stationery showed a few buffaloes standing on the left side of the paper, gazing eastward. 
gazing eastward. Um, Watt, a born-again charismatic Christian, had the stationery redone so that the buffalo were standing on the right side, gazing toward the west. Watt knew intuitively and doctrinally that the right is the side of the father, as well as the neoconservative politics and free enterprise economics. Okay. Christianity is a dextral religion in all its aspects. The sign of the cross is made with the right hand as, as is the benediction. Jesus always raises his right hand in blessing in paintings and in heaven. He sits on the right hand of the father. Any blessing made sinisterly with the left hand is seen by Christians as blasphemy, part of demon worship. The left side represents not only the social, political, economic left, but also the side of, ah, of the communal mother. Damn it. Of the communal mother. Or in the case of the interior department stationery, communal buffalo. Um, Watt was speaking from his, from the same right wing perspective when he condemned Native American tribal life as socialistic, i.e. it is a communally oriented life, reverent of the earth, and is thus seen by Watt as left wing. American Indians walk and dream on the side of the mother. In the iconography of Christian patriotism, all true Americans must be right-handed, right wing, father dominated, and physically male. Anything vaguely communal, leftish, and mother-dominated is viewed as sinister by the patriots. The female body, in other words, is politically subversive or has lurking, has a lurkingly treasonous potential. Oh my God, y'all are not here. Listen, the female body, in other words, is politically subversive or has a lurkingly treasonous potential. All patriarchy is structured always in militant reaction to this potential. Come on, God. In ancient matriarchal society, man stood always in the relation of son to the mother. He could become divine. And he did become divine by being born out of God, the mother. By undergoing the lunar process, the twin world of the moon God, experiencing both waxing and waning, cosmic dissolution, as well as cosmic union. In this way, his individual ego would transcend arrogance and exploitativeness and become truly wise. All the ancient male heroes, even such a one as Gilgamesh of Sumer and Babylon, who defies the great goddess in Anna Ishtar and is cursed by her, receive their wonderful beauty, strength, and creative destructive restlessness from their mothers, forms of the goddess. Their mortality comes from their human fathers. Oh, oh my God. Oh my God. Mm -mm. Yo, 
Listen. Listen. In ancient matriarchal society, y'all, man always stood in the relation of son to the mother. He could become divine. He did become divine by being born out of God, the mother. By undergoing the lunar process, the twin world of the moon god, experiencing both waxing and waning, cosmic dissolution, as well as cosmic union. In this way, his individual ego would transcend arrogantness, uh, arrogance and exploitativeness and become truly wise. All the ancient male heroes, even such a one as Gilgamesh of Sumer and Babylon, who defies the great goddess in Anna Ishtar and is cursed by her, they still receive their wonderful beauty, strength, and creative destructive restlessness from their mothers, forms of the goddess. Their mortality comes from their human fathers, but it has no connotation of fleshly sin, guilt, or punishment. It is simply death in the great round of life. Gilgamesh, like his Babylonian counterpart Marduk, the son of the sun, ah, the son of the sun, was given the task of overcoming and slaying the great mother in her form as the cosmic dragon. But Gilgamesh is just at the beginning of patriarchy. Unlike the one-dimensional superheroes of later times, he still retains some of the sensitivity, wisdom, bisexual wholeness of the ancient matriarchy. He feels and acknowledges fear and doubt. He repeats over and over that he must not bring harm or sorrow to his mother. He is depicted as often cowardly. He loves another man and he fails in his struggle to become immortal. Gilgamesh is told starkly and truly that everything born must die. Otherwise, there can be no magic life or new beginnings. Man cannot conquer immortality by tricks, gimmicks, aggressive game plans, or armed warfare. He can only realize immortality by becoming whole. Woo! Mm. In the Gilgamesh epic of 4,000 years ago, the goddess of birth, death, and rebirth had not yet been subdued. She still lived as a natural process of wisdom in human minds and in evolutionary human feelings toward an evolving universe. The heroes of our present age, though, are something else. They are Superman. They are Bionic Man, James Bond, the Terminator, Rambo. They are the one-dimensional cartoon men of children's comics and TV. These 20th century heroes, superheroes, are fiendishly skilled in one speciality, always involving a lot of noisy, smashing, and silent, spy, uh, silent spying, and absolutely stupid in all other ways. They don't need profound human intelligence. They have machines, all presented as sex symbols for the masses. They are all eerily asexual and misogynistic. They are all just too pure, too patriotic, too damn busy, too damn dangerous, or moving too fast for one woman or any woman. Oh, oh, oh my God. Listen, their primary sensual relationship is with their machinery. 
the only wildness around them, thanks to the speed of the light media, cinema, television, magazine, photography, um, is embodied in man-made objects, usually of shining metal. The magic swift gun, the magic swift car, the numinous technologies of spying, capture, and death. These are alive and wild. Everything else surrounding our heroes is dead meat. Clothed in steel, never born of a mother, the cartoon heroes are true products of huge metal policy, metal, metalopathies, metapolicies, skyscraping fallacies and calculator minds that click and tick like bombs. There is no, there is not a tree or an ecstasy or a moon in sight. Some variation of bionic man is the ultimate 20th century vision owing his life, not to nature, but to man made parts, which are, which are far superior to the original body he got from his mother. And he can be reborn with a screwdriver. Oh my God, y'all, y'all ain't here. This humanoid superhero is as much a product of pure male, ideal homosexuality as is his prototype Christ. Listen, when the words drop like bombs, baby, listen. Oh, my God. Listen, when the words drop like bombs, I'm just trying to tell you. Yo, he can be reborn with a screwdriver, baby. And this humanoid superhero is as much a product of pure male ideal homosexuality as is his prototype. Christ, okay? In Mary, especially within the Catholic Church, the goddess, for the first time in history, bows down to worship male gods as creators of life. Listen. Mm, listen. Ooh. Yeah, hold on, let me grab my top. Ugh. In Mary, in Mary, especially within the Catholic Church, the goddess, for the first time in human history, bows down to worship male gods as creators of life. Okay. The Christian religion, a transvestism of the spirit. Oh, oh my God. They said a transvestism of the spirit has from the beginning co-opted female experience, taking the victory and raw energy out of it, leaving us only an insipid view of our female selves. Christianity distorts the natural birth process into a grotesque and unnatural story of birth through the male who twisted in this artificial creation becomes a sadomasochistic symbol of arbitrary power and empty submission 
four, the whole thing centers around birth. Oh my God. Oh my God, baby. Listen, some, some questions are going to be coming out of this workshop beginning in July that have to be dealt with. Okay. Oh, for the whole thing centers around birth, the primeval mystery and terror and blood right in which women struggle alone to create and triumphant, tri, triumph within the vast unknown. Christianity, um, Christianity for 2000 years has gained its energy by co-opting and distorting this experience, this fact, these symbols. For, for while, uh, let's see, for while maternal suffering is unconditional, since it is ontologically in inevitable, the suffering Christ is blackmail, a wretched and manipulative, oh shit, a manipulative appeasement to a cruel, manipulative, jealous father God. Baby, listen, I might need to read that whole paragraph again, child. In Mary, especially with the, within the Catholic Church, the goddess for the first time in human history bows down to worship male gods as creators of life. The Christian religion, a transvestism, uh, transvestitism of the spirit, has from the beginning co-opted the female experience, taken the victory and raw energy out of it, leaving us only an insipid view of our female selves. Christianity distorts the natural birth process into a grotesque and unnatural story of birth through the male, who twisted in this artificial creation becomes a sadomasochistic symbol of arbitrary power and empty submission. For the whole thing centers around birth, the primeval mystery and terror and blood right in which women struggle alone to create and triumph within the vast unknown. Christianity for 2000 years has gained its energy by co-opting and distorting this experience, this fact, these symbols. For while maternal suffering is unconditional, since it is ontologically inevitable, the suffering Christ is blackmail, a wretched and manipulative appeasement to a cruel, manipulative, and jealous Father God. Woo! Mary is wife, mother, and child to the same male power figure. She is utterly meek, abject, passive. In her, the ancient power of the goddess is captured, chained, used, cannibalized, metaphysically cannibalized in T. Grace Atticon's critical phase, domesticated and tranquilized. It is no accident that Mary is portrayed as giving birth in tranquility and bliss as a reward for her asexuality, oh my God, and her total submission, thus redeeming herself of the crime of Eve, baby, while Christ, her son, takes on the suffering and dramatic childbearing role of the mother. Oh, my God. Ah! Y'all ain't hearing. Y'all ain't hearing. 
I ain't got an amen, like what the fuck, none of that. You understand? Oh my God. For he twists on the cross in labor to give birth to a redeemed human race, pierced by the soldier's sword, blood and water pour from his body, exactly as from a woman in childbirth. The figure displayed on the crucifix in Catholic churches particularly is a male parody of the female experience of menstrual bleeding, of childbirth, of ontological physical suffering for the human race. <laughs> Woo! But while Christ co-ops this female experience into his own power and glory, women who really do these things have been forced to hide, have been forced to hide the signs of our bleeding our child-bled crucifixions as unclean processes, as badges of corruption, inferiority, and shame, baby. Yo, the deified male martyr flaunts his sacrifice everywhere, and we are supposed to bow down to it. Women, the real thing, are required by decency to hide our messiness out of the sight of men. In the Making of the English Working Class by E.P. Thompson, who describes how among the Methodist congregations of the 19th century, Christ's wounds were spoken of in a highly ecstatic, sexual, masochistic, sadistic language. His bleeding body was unconsciously identified, Thomas thinks, with the female body role under patriarchy, long-suffering sacrificial, the erotic passive object of male frustrations and brutality. God damn it. In the labyrinth of solitude, Octavio Paz explores modern sadism and torture as extreme macho attempts to get, quote, revenge against feminine hermeticism, end quote. Aggressive, passive, female otherness a desperate attempt to obtain a response from a body will feel it we feel is insensible oh my god oh my god oh my god oh my god listen can this be the origin uh, this is just a side note can this be the origin of the long-standing myths that Black women do not feel pain the way others feel pain? This, this what I just read to you. Can this be the origin of this myth that continues to plague, plague Black women in medical in the medical uh, spheres throughout the entire world? From the early the early years of you know fathers of gynecology experimenting on black women without anesthesia black women being less likely to be given um pain relieving drugs during pregnancy and labor this that i just read you understand let me let me read that last long ass sentence let's see oh my god <laughs> okay in the making of the English working class, E.P. Thompson describes how, among the Methodist congregations of the 19th century, Christ's wounds were spoken of in a highly ecstatic, 
sexual, masochistic, sadist language. His bleeding body was unconsciously identified, Thomas Thompson thinks, with the female body role under patriarchy, long-suffering, sacrificial, the erotic passive object of male frustration and brutality. In The Labyrinth of Solitude, Octavio uh, Paz explores modern sadism and torture as extreme macho attempts to get revenge against feminine hermeticism, against passive female otherness, a desperate attempt to obtain a response, oh my God, from a body we feel is insensible. Okay? But the female role of ins, uh, of, ins, in, of insensate passive victim body is just that, a role. A role inculcated, enforced, and prolonged by a patriarchal religion, which must keep women numb and silent while its male God, Christ, acts out a feminine role. The erotic, dramatic role of bleeding and childbirth. But Christ, as a transvestite, oh, God damn, y'all ain't hearing Oh, my God. Oh, 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 oh. Listen. But Christ, as a transvestite or female imitation sacrifice to an asexual, asexual, jealous father God, right, represents unbearable distortion. It is God itself in this twisted person of Christ who is maddeningly alien and alienating, ontologically insensate and eerily other. The entire world, the entire universe is eerily other. And the sadism and torture increases daily. Crazed men beating otherness into a bloody pulp. Oh, in such a world where torture and brutality or persistent threats of torture and brutality constitute daily facts of life for a majority of the people on earth, sadomasochism and or S&M have become a game for some people. The game is played by American heterosexuals, lesbians, and gay men and bisexuals. S&M is seriously justified or rationalized Bias participants as one, an activity that frees people from sex roles by allowing them to exchange roles and experience the other. And two, a means of learning about power, baby, of acquiring power and of understanding power relationships and dynamics. <sighs> On the first count, S&M advocates assume wrongly, as many feminists have pointed out, that torturer and victim roles are somehow ontologically rather than culturally derived, and that therefore by experiencing both roles and by exchanging them in role play, we can then learn something about our ontological selves. Oh my God. <laughs> our ontological selves, including our sexual selves as female and male. In fact, Torturer and victim roles do not represent, respectively, the ontological male or the ontological female. 
Playing out and exchanging these roles teaches us nothing about who we are. Rather, it teaches us only about the roles a culture has imposed on us for several thousand years as psychological, political means of confusing, co-opting, and repressing our true ontological energy. Come on, y'all ain't hearing the word. This is, this is preaching that is happening right now. Okay? Surely the major political travesty of of S&M activity and its rationalizations lies in its second claim that it seriously pretends to be telling us something about power relationships. Surely the whole monstrous point about power relationships is their involuntary nature. The torture victim does not volunteer for some torture experience, nor does the torturer agree to stop the procedure upon request. Come on, (coughs) y'all. The power is defined and determined uh, solely by the fact that it can be inflicted by the will of one against the will of another. Come on. All right. Against the will of another. But but S&M advocates insist that their activities are based on mutual agreement and that this mutual agreement can teach us something about power relationships. Such an agreement totters horribly on the edge of suggesting all torture is chosen and that all torturers are simply giving their victims the experience they really desire. Oh, shit. The obscenity of S&M in a political context is that the game players can get up and walk away from the game of pain, while real victims of real torture, i.e. of real power relationships, cannot get up and walk away. What we learn from one context, voluntary S&M, cannot in, uh, can, cannot in any way be transferred over to uh, understand the other context, power relationships in the real world. S&M teaches us nothing about power. It teaches us only about certain forms of game-playing behavior in the West, and especially about the increasing inability of many of us to tell the difference between game-playing in the Western world and real life everywhere the hell else, baby. Okay? Oh! Oh, shit! Listen. Nothing about real life anywhere else to transfer the contextual experience of what is essentially white, middle-class, American psychotherapeutic activity, human empowerment games, self-choosing behavior, into what for for most S&M players is a contextual non-experience of brutal and unrelieved global power dynamics, power politics. It is the epitome of self-indulgence and unreality, baby. Such a contextual confusion is a sign of nothing but political privilege. Woo! Listen. Call a thing a thing, okay? Call a thing a thing. A few well-off Americans can afford to play at torture. The model clothed only in S&M bondage appear, uh, the model clothed in only S&M bondage appears on the cover of Vogue, etc. It comes and goes as a trendy thing, something like wearing camouflage bikinis and fashion bandles, 
Something like playing at war when one has never known war. Starting with the, uh, starting with the dissade, the whips and boots, the expensive torture instruments designed and manufactured by highly paid artisans, the aristocratic torturers and voluntary cringing victims of all the S&M games do not represent sexual liberation in any form. They are in the West, a sad, obsessive acting out of the Christian, <laughs> of the Christian crucifixion. Oh my God. Hold on. Ho, 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 ho. Starting with the Desai, the whips and the boots, the expensive torture instruments designed and manufactured by highly paid artisans, the aristocratic torturers and voluntary cringing victims of all the S&M games do not represent sexual liberation in any form. They are in the West, a sad, obsessive acting out of the Christian crucifixion ritual and social class passion, what can be called the decadence imitation of Christ. The S&M fixation is not on sensuality, but on stylized, oh my God, on stylized coercion and humiliation, the grotesque and deliberate unnaturalness of S&M ritual reflects the Christian perversion of the natural birth, life, and death process through the, tr the total perversion of the human sexual experience. The sadistic punisher is, listen, the, the sadistic punisher is Yahweh Mantle. The eternal sufferer is woman womb Jesus. All our lives are twisted on the cross of this bizarre distortion of ontological reality. S&M game players like Christ on the cross are symptoms of our sexual spiritual problem, but certainly not the cure. In this, in his study of the effects of Protestant Christianity on the working class of England, E.P. Thompson also speaks on how the Methodist church helped pave the way for the imprisonment of economically uprooted peasants in the urban factories of the industrial revolution. When Protestant reformism merged its Calvinist its Calvinist belief in the complete depravity of most of humankind with the marvelous new profit-making machinery of factory mass production, what could be called capitalist theology was born, baby. Y'all ain't hearing. The men of wealth, the investors and factory owners were obviously the elect few morally pre-selected by God for heaven and righteous power, meanwhile on earth. The masses of workers, on the other hand, had clearly been divinely prefabricated to suffer <laughs> via endless hard labor for their innate corruption to fit the workers to the assembly lines, to chain the many bodies together into functioning parts of an industrial machinery, grinding out wealth for the few. Religion was called in, called in as always to help program living organisms into a daily condition of productive repression. In England, the Protestant religion was the right hand of the factory owners. You hear? Forced from the 
forced from their rural cottage industries and herded into crowded, diseased cities, the peasants were forbidden by God to ever again be naturally alive. They were forbidden their seasonal festivals, their dancing, their music, their singing, all those pagan communal rhythmic rites which energized the people and let them know who they were, that they were living beings of a living earth, forbidden all forbidden all memory and practice of organic rhythm. The people were more readily inured to a life of, me uh, of mechanical rhythm. Thus, the rural English pe uh, peasants were reprogrammed by the Protestant churches into urban factory workers. The grim effects remain to this day. Pagan music and dance were built on erotic and melancholy modal scales and complexly, complexly sensual drum rhythms, which Protestant Christianity especially saw as devil inspired. It was Protestant moral rationality that finally forced European music into the constricting framework of the major and minor of the major and minor scales and the tick-tock or marching rhythms of two, two, four, and four, four time. Interestingly, modal scales and pagan rhythms have returned to public life via rock music. And if most young people on earth are now walking around with transistor radios plugged into their brains, it is because rock energy is the global drug of the people currently. A pagan resuscitation of the body and a disembodied antibody world. Christian fundamentalists of today, like their historic counterparts, Hate rock, hate rock's sound and lyrics and denounce it as immoral devil music. In fact, rock is pagan music and its rhythms and lyrics express the memory of the blood. With its dismissal of the worship of Mary, the Protestant church got rid of the iconic mother altogether and with all and with her all organic celebratory links to the earth and to the body's rhythmic ecstatic life. In her place, we have been given the machine. So, um, somebody, uh, let's see, um, Roy, uh, Roy, Roy, let's see, Roy, Roy Agus Jones, Roy Agus Jones. So this is the great cosmic mother rediscovering the religion of the earth by Barbara Moore and Monica Zhu. Um, we are just finishing chapter 48. So um, what I'm going to do, this is chapter 48 that I've just completed. If you go into my YouTube channel, so for those that are watching via Facebook, uh, my YouTube channel, just like my name, has changed everywhere along all my social media. So you can look for Cassandra Faye Floyd. That is my YouTube channel. Uh, for those that are tuning in from YouTube, all you have to do is go through my list of videos. You would have to click live or like all videos because I've been reading this book live, even though it gets archived, um, because I am going to um, skip over reading chapter 49. I just did it about a month ago. I skipped ahead to read chapter 49, but in lieu of the whole quote leak of the decision to possibly overturn Roe versus Wade. And that, that chapter, though it's not solely about abortion, a good portion of it is covered. And, um, and so chapter 49, you can 
go back to. I just read it about a month ago. And so the next chapter, when I come back on Monday at 2.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, um, the next chapter that we will be reading is chapter 50, which is entitled Beyond the Male God and His Machine. But I'm telling you, before I, before I, um, come, and that's in three parts, by the way, the machine was a long chapter. So it is broken down into three parts when you go into my YouTube, part one, part two, and part three. And so I would say while you're washing dishes, while you're driving on a long trip, or you're stuck in traffic, listen to the machine it is a game-changing chapter among many in this book and then monday we will pick up with chapter 50 uh which is entitled beyond the male god and his machine for those that are tuning in late if you go onto my youtube page which again is cassandra faith lloyd um and for those that are interested this is a side note I, i just did a um I just did a post on Saturday about why I changed my name, why I changed my, why I am going back to my birth name um, after having been Iyapo for 20 years. So I think it's impactful because this is, this was about, you know, my shadow work, which we all are supposed to be doing heavily right now, uncomfortably right now. And so if you ain't uncomfortable, you ain't doing shadow work. Sorry. And so this was a part of that. So Hopefully that is a message that can be helpful to someone who is doing this deep introspective shadow work as Saturn is in retrograde until October 22nd in the height of a Pluto returns in the United States. So it's shadow time, baby. It's shadow time. We can't clear November 2024 without getting this work in. That's my side note. So for those of you who are tuning from Facebook, go to my YouTube page, Cassandra Faye Floyd, look in the descriptions below any of the videos and you will see, um, one, the link that I will be using to facilitate the book club after I'm done reading the book. My hope is that it's only two more chapters, three more chapters left. So my hope is to finish the book by the beginning, the first week in July so that we can go ahead and begin the, um, the book club. And the book club is going to be basically taught workshop style. So from each chapter, I will have questions that I will post in the book club and then I will host a Zoom and then we can, after you listen to me read, which was the whole purpose for me to read the whole book, that way I get it. Our lives are crazy. Our lives are crazy busy. This book is like the length of a Bible, right? Very, I even numbered my book like the Bible, verses and everything, right? So that it's easier to facilitate these discussions when we get started. But I'm telling you, I mean, the book is a game changer. And this is from a woman who owns right now, what, 1,286 books and have read 90% of them. So I'm telling you, it's the game changer. Male, female, gender nonconforming, LGBTQIA, don't matter. If you If you were not given birth to in a test tube, this book is about you. That's all I got to say about that. As I said in the beginning, some great things happened over the weekend. I ended up meeting the daughter of one of the authors, which was game changing. So I want to talk to her about the possibility of interviewing her because she was a she was a young girl when her mother wrote the book. And she can talk about all of that, which is crazy. And um, please like, share, subscribe. Um, yeah, like, share, subscribe. If anything struck you, if anything moved you, if you were moved in any way, 
please share the information. Yo, I, um, I, you know, I am doing this in the midst of my life, right? Being a full-time grandmother, you know, with my daughter and my grandkids and my life and my job and all of that stuff. But I take this time three days a week to go through this book, to study this book, to be able to share with you, right? What I know, not believe, not have faith in, what I know is going to have an enormous impact on anybody that reads or participates or hears the content of this book. Okay, so with that being said, that's that's your homework assignment is to share this video with five people and then go into my messages on the video or go into my my messages on YouTube or on Facebook or Instagram and say, I forwarded your video to five people. Do that for me. That's your homework. Okay. I am so, so grateful that you all took the time today to walk with me on these two chapters of The Machine. You have to listen to it. It's a game changer. The book was written in 1987, just FYI. And so there is so much there that reads like the book was written, you know, within the last decade. And it was written almost 50 years ago. Um, like the writing on the wall. It was just really profound. This is my fourth time reading the book. So I'm not joking. Okay. And I'm fed every time I read the book. So that being said, this is Cassandra Faye Floyd. I thank God known as Jacqueline Jeanette Futch for saying yes to my life when she could have said no. And this, my friend, is the, my friends, is the origin of all power. It is the beginning of the manifestation of any power on earth. It's our mother's ability to say yes to our existence, to say yes to our lives so that we can fulfill our personal destiny. So thank you so much. <laughs> Somebody. Somebody on my YouTube page said, damn, Iapo, I don't even know if I know, I don't even think I know five people. <laughs> Shit. If you don't know five people, I guess you got a righteous excuse. But everybody else, please forward any of my videos, clips of my videos to five people. If you don't know five people, then three. I accept it. If you don't know three people, one will do. Thank you so much. This is always fun for me. And don't feel shy. If you have questions, if you do not agree, that's okay. My forewarning is this. I do not argue with people. My position is my position. I remain open to evolution of my ideas, of my space. However, um, I don't argue. So if you are looking to throw down, you can go elsewhere. If it's not for you, it's not for you. And that's okay. No harm, no foul. But you should just be warned. If you want to throw down and that's where you, that's what you attempting to do, you won't get no play here. Sorry. You won't get no spot. That's just me. That being said, look for things to come. I got big news coming up very soon. Still plotting, but it's coming very soon. So thank you so much for tuning in. Please hit me up. Please let me know what you think. I know I stop a lot and I take notes and stuff. If that's annoying, you can let me know that. That you can let me know. I get excited. You know what I'm saying? But if it's too much and you would rather for me to just read straight through, I can do that and take notes later. But anyway, thank you so much. I will see you again on Monday at 2.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on YouTube, on Facebook, and on Instagram.
Peace. All right.